0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my guest is Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific University. Her book, Pentecostals in America, published by the Columbia University Press, is the topic of this show. Walsh offers us a critical look at the history, key figures, and ideas that made Pentecostalism unique and challenges the narrative gloss offered by its adherents and church historians. She surveys the often contentious history of the movement, innovators at odds with founding figures, practices of speaking in tongues, faith healing, and prophecy, and its attitude towards race, sex, and gender. The significant contributions of African Americans in in the adoption of their religious expressions did not heal racial divisions. Walsh explores the innovative theologies and ministries of founders such as Amy Simple McPherson and John Alexander Dowie. Seeing itself as the last great movement of God, Pentecostals rejected mainstream culture, yet found ways to accommodate modern media and produce stars such as Elvis Presley, Marvin Gaye, Joel Osteen, and Joyce Myers. In the process of continual reinvention, Pentecostalism, built churches, institutions, and missionary efforts marked by its unique religiosity and continue to struggle with race, gender, and sexuality. Pentecostals in America can be best understood as a multifarious religious movement that has spread among diverse ethnic groups, made inroads into other Christian denominations, traveled to the far reaches of the globe, and its stories of divine intervention fire the religious imagination of many. While other religious groups are in decline, it continues to grow at home and abroad. Here is my conversation with Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Arlene, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So, let's talk about your book, Pentecostals in America. First, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write this to- about this topic. Why did this topic interest you?
1: All right. Well, uh, I'm not Pentecostal, which many people do kind of leap to. I was born and raised Catholic in East L.A., went to school in Los Angeles for the most part. Um, in graduate school, my mentor, uh, Dr. Vicki Ruiz, I went up to her and I said, uh, I really want to do religion in America. I don't quite know what to do. Uh, I'd like to do some kind of really crazy 19th century healing mesmerist type. And she said, well, that's nice, but nobody's going to hire you to do that. <laughs> Basically saying that um, as a Latina, I was expected to do a couple of things. And I, uh, we settled on the topic of Latino Pentecostalism, which is the subject of my first book. And Pentecostals in America, the second one that we're talking about now, is kind of a natural outgrowth of a subject I've been studying for about 20 years. So what is it? Because
0: you know, a lot of people have heard the word Pentecostal, but a lot of people don't know what it is.
1: It is uh, Pentecostalism is an outgrowth of the Holiness movement at the end of the nineteenth century in the United States. It's a Protestant movement mostly. It it believes basically that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in Christian theology, is active today and it can heal, can offer prophecy, uh, is kind of an expediter of conversion and that one really needs the holy spirit in the in their lives in order to become a better minister of the gospel. So you you pray for and ask for what is called the baptism of the holy spirit and it depends on who you talk to but generally the the classical take on it has been you receive it physically and it's essentially pentecostalism is knowing that you have received this gift. You begin to speak in tongues. You're able to heal and prophesy. Essentially, all of miracles described in the New Testament are capable of happening today. That, I think, in a nutshell, is what Pentecostalism is.
0: Now, when most people, when I think of, of, of Pentecostalism, I think of Jimmy Swaggart. Okay, this is all very... Yeah. <laughs> and I think of the 1997 film with, rog, uh, with Robert Duvall, The Apostle.
1: Yes.
0: And yes. so,
1: how, how accurate... How accurate is the Apostle? Well, these are televangelists that you're talking about. Jimmy Swaggart, uh, the um, Robert Duvall movie uh, was was a great movie, by the way. It was the first depiction that I'd ever seen of Latino Pentecostals when he has that little um, uh, revival in a tent uh, in South Texas, I believe. It was pretty accurate in terms of uh, how animated these these preachers get and how... um, serious they take their craft it is it is a craft not everybody can do this so that's it was accurate I'm sure that Pentecostals would take issue with the the salaciousness and the controversy because that kind of plays into the stereotype of all um, televangelists being scandalous right like Jimmy Swaggart
0: or someone like that
1: yeah Jimmy Swaggart James Baker all the televangelists you see today which Basically, uh, uh, leave a bad taste in people's mouths, always asking for money, things of that nature. So, But I love the movie. I thought it was great. I thought the, the music was great. I thought the story was good. I think he did uh, the intensity that was Robert Duvall reaching out for God to give him an answer, uh, to help him through these things. That is very reminiscent of things that I've seen uh, when Pentecostals pray and when they're in crisis. Uh, so that that wasn't too far from the truth. So one of the things that you talk about your book early
0: on before you even get into it is um, why, that, that there's little critical work on Pentecostalism. The, the history of Pentecostalism has been written by people who are adherents, uh, people from the inside or people in the denominations who are trying to project a particular narrative. So why is that? If it, Especially since you talk about how, how big it is and how it continues to grow, why has there been little critical attention to Pentecostalism?
1: I think many people have conflated it with evangelicalism. And there has, there's a huge corpus, as you know, of work on evangelicals in the 19th century reform movements, even to this day, the whole uh, lots of material on the, the radical right and the Christian right and things of that nature. Jimmy Swaggart, uh, going back further, people like Billy Sunday and uh, Billy Graham. Pentecostals have kind of fallen by the wayside. They they are a type of evangelical, and they there hasn't been a lot of critical study. And also to to be to be fair, um, academics unless they are interested in a subject like this, there's not a lot of written documentation. So they're going to have to go talk to them. They're going you're going to have to sit in churches and you're going to have to interview them like you're doing now. Um, you have to get close to the movement, to really understand it. And I have found most academics are just not really willing to entertain that kind of deep ethnographic fieldwork to really understand what Pentecostalism is. It is, you have to be prepared, I would say, to know that there's, this is a very different way of doing church, especially if you were raised in a liturgical tradition or a mainline Protestant tradition or no tradition. This is very different.
0: Now, it's interesting what you just said, that it's dumped in with uh, evangelicals, because so many evangelical churches, if i not correct, find Pentecostalism repugnant and sort of they're really off, almost like they're the heretics of evangelicalism. Uh, so that's kind of interesting.
1: It is interesting. I, I want to say that it it has, I guess, flattened out. To, uh, to a certain extent, but I still hear it among some of uh, people who I know uh, that Pentecostals are uh, irrational, that they don't stick to the Bible. This is really about the Bible. This is really about Jesus. It's not about this theatrics. It's not about... It's uh, Pentecostals, by some evangelical standards, are too emotional. They're too excitable, and they focus way, way too much on experience, and therefore they're Theology is unbalanced, but yeah. uh, they should really, really stick to scripture and a, m- a much more fundamentalist view of what's important. So th- that's that's the main criticism. I assume. Yeah. OK, so
0: there are some th- theological differences between uh and, and they were, I think I've seen in the, in the past that there were a strong reactions within, you know, like a Baptist church or a Methodist church, if some of their members, you know, be picked up some of the, of the ideas from uh, Pentecostals, you know, char-
1: what we call charismatics, um, this has yes. split a lot of churches. Oh, it did, especially at the beginning of the movement, at the turn of the 20th century, they were kicked out, Pentecostals who experienced what is called Spirit Baptism. Which would be speaking in tongues were kicked out of mostly Methodist churches, but also they were kicked out of Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches. That's all you had to do is make a statement in church say that you had received this gift and you had been spirit baptized and you were going you were on your way out and there's uh, literature wars going back and forth in in these various periodicals of the turn of the century talking about how Pentecostals have um, uh, one of the uh more famous quotes from Holiness Preacher, I believe her name is Alma White, said the Pentecostals and speaking in tongues was the vomit of Satan. Right. <laughs> so, uh, no love loss, no love loss. That has toned down a bit because, as you said, of the charismatic movement. What you have now is this huge swath of evangelicalism, not tied to a particular denomination. But doing the whole non-denominational thing and really operating in a very charismatic way with the hands raised in worship and and calling on the spirit for healing, you don't see a lot of visible signs of speaking in tongues and things like that. They kind of compartmentalize that off to certain times for certain people in certain places, but they don't, they're not against it as much as they used to be, though there are a few denominations where it's still not, um, it's prohibited.
0: Okay, so now um, you know when you did your field work, it looks like you've spent you have spent years and years decades it looks like among Pentecostals going to their meetings or talking to them can you tell can you tell us something about what that experience was for you in terms of uh, what did you what did you see in here that deeply touched
1: you or did you see things that really alarmed you? I was really struck by how different it was with the way I was raised um uh, I know you work a lot on liberation theology, so I'm sure you're no stranger to Catholicism. Uh, it was very regimented and orderly and liturgical, and you get in and you get out. And, um, you know, you, you find ways to to be expressive in a Catholic sense, but you don't raise your hands. You don't jump and shout. You don't cry. Um, and so that the difference struck me. I was very impressed by the Passion to be honest with you that I have never seen people so completely given over and passionate about something which I had been raised to believe was really private, something that you, it was between you and God. It was, it, it was nothing. It was, it was not for public consumption. People shouldn't see you doing these things in public. It was unsightly and unseemly. So that really, that really was quite touching. Um, I have visited hundreds of Pentecostal churches uh, many of them, for very long stretches of times, I have flirted with the idea, um, uh, but I think what's put me off, quite frankly, have been the politics. Um, they are very conservative and uh, politically, and I'm not. And just the theology in many of those churches uh, was against some of the churches that I grew up in—against Catholic, you know, anti-Catholic, anti-Liturgical, anti-mainline Protestant—and I just uh I'm not one for sectarianism and uh, unfortunately I found a lot of that in those churches but the passion to go back to your original question the passion was uh, unmatched I had never seen anything like it in any church I had ever studied
0: and we'll talk I'll have some questions about that later but first I want to get back to some more fundamental questions like you talked about it, Pentecostalism emerged from the holiness movement. A lot of people don't know what the holiness movement is. And is there, a still, is there still a holiness movement today that is still separate from Pentecostalism? Can you kind of talk about the holiness
1: movement? Sure, sure. The holiness movement um, came out of a, a deep dissatisfaction with what a lot of folks would call uh, too much formalism. Uh, particularly in the Methodist church of the 19th century, that they were reliant too much on form and not prayer. They were relied too much on liturgy and a set order of the service and not just getting on your knees and praying and, and asking God to sanctify you and, and help you with your, with your life. Uh, the holiness movement still exists. It is much smaller than it used to be. I want to say it dates are about 18, late 1860s, 70s. Into the early 20th century was their heyday. Pentecostalism kind of short-circuited their popularity. And they became popular because holiness folks would say, look, it's not about form. It's not about liturgy. It's not about polity. It's not about how your churches are, are organized. It's about God and being holy before God and allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify you into sinless perfection. So they were trying to essentially look back at Wesley's original intent. What did John Wesley really mean when he talked about perfection, when he talked about the spirit, and when he talked about um, really, really confessing in, before God your sins and being transformed? The holiness was uh, stirred a lot of people in uh, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian circles, and they too were kicked out of those churches. They formed holiness associations. And that continued into the 20th century. They still exist. I would say the holiness movement has found a fairly comfortable place in denominations like the Salvation Army, uh, the Wesleyan Church, uh, the Free Methodist Church. There's a a whole bunch of denominations that are associated with those kinds of churches that would still consider themselves holiness. And there's a whole bunch of denominations among African-American holiness churches that would still focus heavily on holiness. And not so much on this expression of spiritual gifts
0: now that you just brought up African Americans, and that was one of the interesting parts of your book was the the role that African Americans played in the emergence of of Pentecostalism, and then the odd subsequent race racial divisions within the denomination that they 've never been able to overcome. so can you talk about what was the role, the role of African Americans in establishing these, this, this Pentecostalism as a movement and it seems like a lot of the expressions in in their worship services are directly coming out of the African-American church tradition.
1: Well, that's absolutely right. Um, American Pentecostalism is an expression of African-American church life, uh, without a doubt, without question. And I think part of the issue has been historically is people actually debated that. They wanted to give, uh, at the beginning of the book, I talk about uh confessional pentecostals especially wanting to find out who the original founder was and this was person was a founder that person was a founder where the geographical area was a founder i mean there have been countless debates about these issues where it's fairly clear just looking at the animating factors of pentecostalism that it is an african american church tradition uh founded in los angeles by william seymour uh, who came out of the Holiness Movement, who was originally baptized Catholic, if, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, who was originally from Louisiana, um, and the rhythms of Pentecostalism, the reliance of the Spirit, the music, um, the kind of quiet desperation and waiting on God to do something in your life, that those have clear um, parallels in the African American church. Uh, I don't know where else it comes from, to be honest with you. It didn't come out of the Holiness Movement like that. It essentially captured its flavor and it was given its lifeblood because of the black church experience.
0: I want to uh, clarify something that I was kind of wondering about. Pentecostalism um, is a denomination or Pentecostalism is really a movement that has taken, has uh, become part of many different denominations. In other words, if you, you, do you have to see Pentecostal in the church name in order to know it's a Pentecostal church? No. Okay. So it is a movement. No, it's the it's letter. It's a movement. Yeah. Okay. It's a broader movement than any particular denomination. Correct. Right. Okay. So, so we're talking about and we're talking about uh, African Americans. Uh, what is uh, what was the the, the re- why did that that de- not, uh, that movement not able to bring black and white people together? Why is it, is it a, was it
1: about politics of the nation? I think, yes, yes, it was Jim Crow America. Uh, So they, uh, the fear was if we integrate our churches, if we give, if white uh, Pentecostal organizations, denominations give black uh, ministers credentials, they'll have a revolt on their hands. Uh, Black ministers could not, Preach in the south uh in white churches um it it became entangled in the the rate the very heightened racial politics of the moment and it just couldn't overcome those politics it, it they tried they did for for little stretches of time, but it just it was impossible because very little very few institutions in the United States were able to overcome jim crow uh this kind of de facto segregation that you saw for for a generation or more, uh, in the 20th, in the early 20th century.
0: It's interesting though, that when you talk about how they viewed the rest of the world, they, they were sort of against the culture they felt, or they saw themselves as going against the culture. They were the last movement of God before the final judgment or whatever the final act is. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, even as they were trying to move, saw themselves as being against, over against, you know, the worldliness, you know, whatever the culture was doing in this area, in this particular instance with race, they were totally almost powerless to overcome it.
1: Yeah, that's uh, sadly ironic, right? I mean, that's that's part of the that that's part of the legacy of the movement is that it just simply uh, I think I guess one of my arguments I don't know if it's in this book or in other things that I've written is that white Pentecostals really didn't have theological tools to to work against Jim Crow. This was a movement that thought that this was the last the last days that this was a, the outpouring of the Spirit uh, as prophesied I believe in Joel that this was the end of the world, that Jesus would come back and Jesus would make everything okay. See? So the, the especially the early generational Pentecostals from the early 1900s into the 1920s and 30s sincerely believed that this was it, that this was the last movement of God before Jesus came back. So there was no need to focus on these what would be considered very mundane worldly issues.
0: Okay, so if it's like, Okay, but in terms of the race issue, they either thought they either thought it was going to get solved when Jesus came back and he would solve it, or yeah. uh, some of them believed some pretty white supremacist sort of things.
1: Oh, without question. Without question. Uh, white Pentecostalism does take root in the Midwest and in the South. So you have social and cultural factors that a lot of these white Pentecostal ministers simply couldn't overcome. I don't even know if they had enough self-reflection to see it in themselves. It, this is just simply the way things were done. You know, and um, it didn't, it took much, much later. A lot of scholars and writers writing much, much later on going, you know, this was wrong. These, these depictions of blacks, this, uh, the, the, the overt racism, the subtle racism, just the exclusion of blacks in many of these meetings uh, was wrong. And um, there's a a strain of thought that says basically what white Pentecostalism did was follow the the route of one of the most significant players of the early movement, Charles Parham, who was definitely a racist. And what African-American Pentecostalism did was basically go the route of William Seymour, who was for integration, who tried his best to integrate uh, the Azusa Street Mission and who wanted to build an integrated worldwide Pentecostal movement before Jesus came back. Uh, So you have these two very powerful forces going on at the same time, and you kind of see what happens.
0: Now, some of this stuff got, of course, the racism gets sort of converted, I mean, not converted, exported. uh, When Pentecostals began their mission movement outside of the United States, Uh, they kind of carry with them an imperial U.S. mission with them.
1: Absolutely. The, again, not a lot of self-reflection, but a lot of American exceptionalism, a lot of uh, cries to the early 19th century of Manifest Destiny, that this is exactly what we should be doing. We are the spark of the world. We are the civilizers of the world. We're bringing good Christian values to all these pagan, heathen lands. And the Pentecostal magazines are filled with that. They're filled with very derogatory pictures of it from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, from the borderlands of the United States. Um, it's it's pretty disheartening to see. Uh, not it wasn't all that way. Yeah, but it was it was pretty bad.
0: So basically, it's not just passive racism. It's it's active
1: racism. Yes. OK. Yes. All right. Um, go so ahead. Have I'm sorry. I-
0: I have another question here about, okay, so we talked about the race and I was wondering what other um, uh, relationships to culture, or what, what things about culture they did not like that they wanted to go against? What other th- elements of American culture they did? Part of it, they thought America was, you know, a great empire that's going to spread the gospel. But the other, they were also against popular culture. Talk about the kinds of things that they would stand against um, that sort of separated them from the rest of the people. Their neighbors and you know their s- communities,
1: oh yeah, well, because they were part of the holiness movement, they were against what they would call worldly entertainment uh so um in the early parts of the movement, uh women were uh, did not they did not want women to to dye their hair to bob their hair, which I guess is a a way you curled it uh, makeup was frowned upon. Um, any kind of entertainment that was considered worldly, uh, movies, uh, when television came along, did not like television. Did, um, one of my sections in the book, I talk a lot about these popular figures who were Pentecostal, who kind of left it. Uh, I guess you could see the embodiment of this is in Elvis Presley, uh, who the Assemblies of God, the largest white Pentecostal movement in the United States, is it's a denomination, uh, disowned. Never talked about Elvis Presley as a as an assembly of the God member, and he was up until fairly into his career. Um, but all of that the dancing, the singing, the rock and roll, uh, things that they viewed as coarsening the culture, as bringing too much sexuality into the culture, as uh, as as causing a a a rupture. And the holiness that they were trying to build within their world and export outside was viewed as something forbidden.
0: It's and then but it's interesting that they produced uh Elvis Presley and then Marvin Gaye. You talk about Marvin Gaye coming out of the Pentecostal movement. Yes. And I thought that was really they produced a lot right. of them. It, it's kind, of, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of it's kind of ironic. But also some of the stuff that you're talking about, they were against dancing and rock music and, you know, worldly music and drinking and all kinds of things were things that, uh, other fundamentalists who are not Pentecostals are also against,
1: right? Correct. So they were, Correct. That's they kind weren't of, unique in that way. Absolutely not. No, they, they were very much in keeping with what probably a Baptist, a fundamentalist Baptist would have said as well. Um, I haven't seen those magazines, but I'm sure they're there uh forbidding their children to go to dancing to dances at school, um, watching what people wore, made sure that they had proper dresses on, um, not allowing women to wear pants, things of that nature. Yeah, so no, no. This doesn't make them different. This really puts them right along the the line of a fundamentalist uh desire to counteract the effects of a culture they view as being lost. Or has already been lost, and they are going to try and win it back
0: so the other issue that they had was uh sex gender uh let's talk about marriage, um how they viewed marriage. Okay. it was really sort of an interesting that the uh, how they had this very high view of marriage, but at the same time uh their leaders at least seemed to be pretty readily looking for a way out of it <laughs> if I. Could s-
1: If I can say that, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yes, I do. Well, I, I, you know, and I don't, when I was writing that, those, that material, I was, I don't know quite what to say about it other than it does on its face look hypocritical. It does on its face look like, you know, you can preach it, but you can't live it kind of stuff. That seemed too easy and too, you know, just dismissive. I mean, I'm sure there was some complexity there. All I can tell you is, you know, Marriage is hard. (laughs) Marriage is difficult. Um, I think living in an abstract world of black and white, a dichotomy of black and white where marriage must begin uh, young. You must stay married forever. um, You must produce children if you possibly can. If not, you should adopt. Um, This in the abstract, in the ideal world sounds wonderful. And wouldn't it be great if everybody was happy and fulfilled in that role, but obviously people are not. You know, they're not fulfilled in that role, and there's just no remedy in the abstract, in the very rigid piety of these denominations. There's very little room for outliers who don't see that as fulfilling.
0: Well, the other thing you've got the situation. There's another thing here that was really odd to me. Well, particularly with the women, the like a. Uh, uh, Catherine Coleman or some of these uh, women, mm-hmm. uh, they um, marriage was a, a, a situation where they really believed in it because their denomination or their movement was really committed to marriage. But at the same time, they found that marriage was kind of a cage and they couldn't fulfill their ministries. Or they felt that God had called them, the Holy Spirit had called them to something bigger. And, and marriage was constraining them. And so... They right. could leave the marriage and, in a way, sort of explain, "I've done this because God has called me." Right, right. The, sa- yeah. the same God, of course, that supposedly sanctified marriage and made it holy, was the same God who is now calling her or out of marriage. It's really interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, that I'm sorry. No, so what I'm going to ask you. So, is 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 the Holy Spirit sort of a kind of a an escape hatch for just about anything in this movement. Like you can say, now <laughs> you can say, well, you can do, you can, you can do anything. But you know, if the Holy Spirit has you dancing, you better dance. And if God has you leaving your spouse for missions, you better do it. Is it kind of a,
1: a way to kind of escape whatever situation you're in? I don't know if the Holy Spirit is, but I want to say. A very interesting process that does happen in Pentecostalism might be, and it is Holy Spirit inspired. So maybe I'm just splitting hairs here, but the idea of revelation, Right. the yeah. idea that you have received a right. word, you've received a prophecy. So That's a, if that yeah. prophecy and word contradicts bedrock foundational ideas of marriage, you can go ahead. That's and what in. I mean. And if it comes- yeah, that is sort of the <laughs> yes. escape
0: hatch, okay? Which is your own private interpretation, your own private relevant. God has spoken to you, and you know that goes the other way too. With you know a young man going up to a young woman and saying, "God told me I'm yes. supposed to marry you." Yes, yes.
1: Um, the well, you have to think of what happens if they don't believe that. If they don't believe that, then they have to abandon the whole idea of revelation and abandoning the whole idea of revelation basically takes out one of the big legs of pentecostalism as a whole if god doesn't talk to you if god doesn't inspire you to do anything with your life then god is this this abstract thing somewhere who doesn't intervene in my personal life that is a god that they would wholesale reject right so god has to do something and you're not supposed to be able to figure it out you just follow see that's the way you do it you just follow it They they don't really have a lot of tools theologically to kind of tease it out and go this is really contradictory how come Catherine Kuhlman and Amy Simple, Amy Simple McPherson and Maria Atkinson and Juanita Bynum and all these major figures historically through all Pentecostalism can leave their husbands and become ministers, and yet there are women suffering in marriages today who can't get a divorce out of the guilt and the shame of doing so because it will affect their status in the church. It's it is a bizarre thing. I admit it. Um, I don't. Other than the escape hatch, which I think you said it put it pretty well. The the the. Let's put it this way: I think the the consequences of not doing it are worse which means that God doesn't talk at all. But yeah, that,
0: but it yeah, was really interesting is that God is talking to individuals here, okay? Uh, and I guess somebody like a yes. Catherine Kuhlman is considered sort of a special person. She has special supernatural gifts that God has given her, and she must. Uh, obey, you know, uh, the revelation that's given to her. And so I'm kind of wondering, I'm going to ask kind of a technical question here. To what degree is Pentecostalism antinomian? And if uh, for the listener, the view that that Christians are released by grace, or in this instance the spirit, from obligation to observing the moral law.
1: Yeah, they would not like that. That has been something that they have been um, accused of. By more, again, more, more theologically oriented mainline Protestants and evangelicals, non-charismatic evangelicals, who say uh, you cannot be released from God's moral laws because you just can't, because nobody can. That's you know that that kind of counters the whole. That's like the whole point. Um. I think it's that it's like this, if I can put it this way. If Catherine Coolman st- stays in her marriage and I think doesn't go off and preach, then the world will be deprived of one of the most unique healing evangelists that God ever put on this earth. Her work as a healer will bring millions of people to Christ. That is worth the cost of the contradiction of her life. Okay. So, okay. So this is just,
0: I just noticed these glaring, you know, gaps, <laughs> not in, not that you no, no, no. didn't do a good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you're trying to unpack this. And I'm going, wait a minute, this is sort of very a hyper individualism. God speaks to you and you and especially people of the elite class of within this movement. Right. Okay. Which means the people who are particularly gifted really have a lot of leeway yeah. about what they can do. Yeah. Uh so makes you want make you understand um, you know, a Jimmy Swaggart or something like that. And and kind of being sympathetic because he's coming out of that. Uh, he was put on a pedestal. He's a special gifted man um and I don't you know how you work that out. I don't know, but okay, so we have another question here um let's talk about the women. I thought the women were very interesting. all the women that you mentioned the ones that are spe- specially gifted as uh, evangelists or healers uh and are
1: very um
0: they're really colorful
1: they are. <laughs> They are. They're they're fascinating women. I wanted to put as many women as I could. There were more that did make the cut, obviously. Um, and I think because of the contradiction that you have already mentioned, uh, you're certainly not the only one, but, but you've really, you know, teased it out very well for the listeners and for me, quite frankly. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, and not that I didn't think about it before, but um, the idea is that they're colorful. I think they have to be colorful. I think they have to to there's 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 some pizzazz and there's some dazzle to pentecostalism if you're going to make it if you will in this ministry as a woman uh because it is so patriarchal um how else are you going to do it how else are you going to make a splash if you are not um uh out there doing something fantastic and dramatic and theatrical uh, that may not be the best way for women to get acknowledged. It would be better for them to be get be acknowledged as theologians or as professors or as ethicists, maybe. But uh, for the but that time, that's not their strong suit. No, that's not the movement's strong suit. Exactly, the strong suit is is spectacle, is performance, right? And and because that's what draws people in. That's the story right? Women are fabulous storytellers. I mean, they weave a narrative, they're sympathetic, uh, they're mother figures to who they need to be mother figures to. And they are, they're just astounding people in and of themselves. And the the other side of that, why I was very attracted to them is their personal stories, their struggle that they hid uh, away from the public so that nobody would know that Kevin Kuhlman basically had a heart condition all her life and was dying from it. And never told anyone that Amy McPherson was, was, pro, was uh, her, the controversy surrounding her death, that she probably took an overdose of drugs um, accidentally, but it happened that she struggled with a lot of physical problems, but again, didn't tell anyone. Uh, that, that whole suffering idea, suffering for the cause of putting yourself, that's, that's a very matronly thing to do, it's a very motherly thing to do, that you don't you sacrifice. For your kids, you sacrifice for your people. Of uh, very endearing quality. I don't know that it's good, uh, but it, I think it endeared the crowds to these people for sure.
0: Well, yeah, the the pro, the, the, the issue of uh, uh, the narrative of women and suffering, suffering women. Yeah. Okay, is just uh, you, you see that in a lot of a lot of situations, uh, mm-hmm. it's very uh, compelling. It, it moves people um because women are supposed to be delicate and mothers and nurturing and they're being hurt and it's kind of ho- intolerable for people. So, yeah, it makes a very and there's and there's some preachers now that still kind of play on that, the suffering woman scenario. Yes. Okay, let me, let's talk about healing. Now, right. it seemed to me from 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 what you're talking here that healing was a, a sort of an aspiration that there were they really didn't seem to uh, require evidence of physical healing it was more like um maybe emotional healing maybe a spiritual healing how much of this healing uh did they actually want uh physical evidence of and were there cases of
1: real physical healing did you investigate that at all they by and large are not interested in evidence in kind of doing an empirical longitudinal study (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to pick a church. <laughs> I'm going to pick a church, and I'm going to look at uh, ten people who were healed. I'll be back in five years and find out how it goes. And then I'm going to look at chronic illness, acute illness. You know, to, to yeah. you know, to really do a scientific work, um, that would not interest them unless it gave them the result that they already wanted, um, which was. These people were healed. I know God healed them. And what they do is they essentially draw on anecdotal evidence, not even of their own, usually of somebody, again, who they heard. They draw draw their evidence from narratives, from stories that they said, well, maybe it didn't work this time. But I can tell you in the church that I was in last time, my cousin said that somebody was healed from cancer. So I know God can do it. And that's uh-huh. that's enough for them. Right. Honestly, that's that's all they need. Now, what happens is they move from physical healing, meaning the early Pentecostals stress, physical healing. By the 40s, 50s, 60s, you start getting into emotional healing and the healing of memories and psychological yeah, healing. Yeah. And those are, yes, and those things are always possible. Those are always going to be happening. Uh, physical healing, maybe that's not God's time. That is always the default answer to why you didn't get physical healing, because I'm sure that that is devastating to people who desperately need it when they when they walk away, not changed, not healed. The answer to that is always it's not in God's timing yet. Just keep the faith, keep believing and God. Will what do about it. the or God has God has a better what plan? About
0: the, the idea that um, if you didn't get healed, your faith is not strong enough.
1: Oh, that's been part of it as well, especially among kind of a subset of Pentecostals. Uh, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but a subset of Pentecostals called the word of faith, uh, who believe essentially once you speak something into existence, like you are now healed from your, your backache, then God has already done it. And what you have to do is capture that positivity, keep it with you and not let negative thoughts enter into it. And God is assured of doing it. All right. So the question is, what happens when it doesn't happen? If you're in one of those churches, you tend not to even tell anyone. You don't tell anyone that it hasn't happened because that releases negativity throughout the whole congregation. You're not supposed to do that. But that is a very small subset. By and large, it goes back to Mm -hmm. what I just said. Uh, They have moved away from the idea of blaming blaming. Chronic illness on sin, very very few people will do that unless with the caveat that that sinful behavior is something that politically uh well for example, right. something like mm-hmm. AIDS um, they had no problem in blaming the uh gay men, especially for AIDS, and so that they had brought that down themselves that it was a plague, et cetera but um you know does does divorce mean the same thing well, does divorce mean that you're bound to get some chronic illness i've never heard of that
0: well now also, that
1: that's something that won't happen now the other thing too is it's you know pentecostalism
0: as you talk about in the end of the end of your book is is growing it, i mean it just continues to grow and exploding all over the world is there is it yes. seems to me that there's people are suffering so much emotional and mental tur- uh, turmoil today for a lot of reasons uh, uh and that, that that you know especially emotional healing or emotional release or a validation of your feelings or a place where you can express yourself your your sorrow your joy whatever would be very attractive and that people would would so i'm wondering if is Pentecostalism a response uh, and i'm and you didn't really deal with this but is it do you think it's a phenomenon of people feeling like they're a cog in a machine in mass culture and they're rejecting modern religion they consider too rational and emotionally dead and they want to feel alive. They want to feel connected. They want to feel like they're being heard, that they're being seen. And and a Pentecostal service would um,
1: provide a place where people can get some emotional release. I don't have any doubt about that. I think that that's exactly why, particularly in industrialized modern Societies, the United States, Western Europe, especially parts of Asia that are much more highly industrialized. That's why Pentecostalism grows. Is uh, it, because it's therapeutic, right? Yes, it's therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, in the developing world, it's therapeutic, but it's also a delivery system for healthcare. Uh, it's a delivery system for at least hope of healthcare, or hope of prosperity, or hope of some kind of network. And you know some very harsh under some very harsh living conditions, with very tenuous governments and military dictatorships. That's part of the developing world. But if we just stick to the modern modern industrialized areas, particularly the United States, uh, this makes people, you know, shed the fetters of rationality, of uh, just be reasonable, just go along, just just do your job and just do this and do that. It it really it's, it's magical. If you want to put it that way, it's, there's not a lot, there's, there's not a lot of points in your life. I mean, unless you go looking for them where you can do this and people won't like laugh at you or think that you're crazy, you know? So what'd you do today? Well, God spoke to me about my life. Oh, I mean, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to the market and hear people talk that way. But you can go. You can enter into any one of these services at any given time, and that's exactly how you feel, and that's how people react to you. Not as um, off kilter somehow. They react to you as, "Wow, God cares for you so much. He's giving you all this knowledge, and He's leading you in a particular way." I, I support you. I want to. I want to help you keep leaning into God because He's going to do some great things for you. Right, and it's the- very positive. It's a very positive, affirming.
0: Safe. Well, part uh, one of the things that you talk about in your book is that uh, Pentecostals did build quite a few institutions—not only denominations, but colleges and uh, Bible institutes, it's more like Bible institutes. And there's a uh, yes. there's one. Uh, I just was talking to a friend. I was in California, and she was telling me hmm. about a particular Bible institute out there you know, it's not accredited, but, but young people are flocking to it from all over the world to go to this Bible Institute. And, uh, it's, you know, it's of the Pentecostal strain sort of thing. And I, you know, I ask why, why are they coming? Why are the young people flocking? Especially, you know, where they get out, you know, they, they have a, a Bible certificate. They don't only really have a degree that they can transfer to anything. And, and, it, and basically what my friend was saying was because, they're very encouraging there. They are firm people, you know, with prophecy, you know, they give young people a boost. They make them feel like God, you're special and God has something special for you. And it's that affirmation and that high encouragement environment that where they pray for them and, and they nurture them in a very close nurturing emotional situation that draws the young people uh, because you know, most young people go to college away to college to some liberal arts college. They're not gonna get very much of anything from professors.
1: Mm,
0: no, sadly. They're not gonna get they're not gonna get emotional. They're not gonna get emotional support. They can go to this Bible college and they can feel like, know. you know, you're gonna be president of Peru.
1: Okay. Yes. Yes, that's uh there is there are not a lot of places, institutions, organizations, places to go where you receive this in this culture. I mean, where? Among your family, maybe, if you have good relations with your family, among some friends, some good friends who can help you through this. But by and large, we're so atomized, aren't we? I mean, it's like, I can't find any place oh. like that. I mean, in grad school, and liberal arts, in colleges, you're working, you're exhausted. Uh, it's, it's not fun and i mean it's it's hard work, it's a lot of work, and then basically, you know the whole stereotype of i'm going to get out of what what job am I going to have? what am I gonna do after that i mean I, I'm in my twenties, and that, my life should be set for me. I have no idea what i'm gonna do so this This is an affirming um institution uh whether there's a church or a bible institute that that portends to offer them something bigger. Everybody wants to be a part of something bigger, and they believe it. They believe they're part of something bigger. I don't think they should be discouraged from that. My, I guess if I have a critique of that is that, you know, what if that big thing doesn't work out? I mean, where are you left with a Bible certificate? What are you yeah, going to yeah. do if this doesn't work well, out? What's yeah, your plan yeah. B? Where's Basically, the plan B? if and you then-
0: tell someone, if someone is, is affirmed that they're going to be, you know, president of a country or something, you also have to tell them, You know what? It's going to be really hard getting there. (laughs) You know, there's a you you know nothing (laughs) nothing like that comes easy. You're going to suffer a lot, and I think that that's one of the things about this particular situation that my friend was telling me about that there's not a lot of discussion about the possibility of suffering that you're going to have to encounter
1: in order to get to fulfill your call. Well, that's correct. That's correct. There, there's almost no talk of that. You know what? There's a lot of talk of persecution. There's a lot of talk about how this culture will persecute you because this culture's lost its reverence for God. Um, people will persecute you because you're a Christian, but you press on. But in terms of difficulty and suffering, because things are naturally hard and because things are naturally difficult and it's very hard to break into many of these things, there's almost no discussion of that. Almost none. And that's, that I think builds up some very um, false ideas in people's minds that things are just going to come just easy, that I'm just going to pray, God's going to make a way and it's going to happen. And why do they believe that? Because they've heard narratives and stories about how God just did just that to their friends or for their, their parents. And it keeps going on and on and on. So the, this, the power really is in these stories. That's why they become to believe. The power is not in empirical evidence. The power is in, but I heard it from them and I trust them. They have some validity in my life and I'm going to do just what they did. A
0: couple of things that come to mind that you don't talk about in your book, but the implications of this movement is, and I'm going to get to the, the current situation, uh <laughs> How, 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 it seems like this, this field, this uh field of Pentecostalism and what comes out of it makes many people very, very ripe for a Donald Trump. Okay. That's, that's one aspect of it The because he, 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 you know, he's got a lot of features that I think would be very appealing. And second, uh, the other thing on the secular side, I don't know if you've ever watched Tony Robbins, the inspirational, inspirational, you know, self-help guy. If uh, yes. uh, Anyway, yes. if you watch him, there was a video, there's a whole series about him. He I watched that uh, documentary on him and he reminded me of a Pentecostal preacher and how he handled the crowd, hmm. how the crowd responded to him. The physicality, the emotion, all this stuff, and uh, I'm just—it seems like there's something in our in our culture. Maybe it's the opposite of we have all these pinned up, you know, anxieties, and there's just people who come along, whether it's Pentecostalism or Tony Robbins or Donald Trump, and sort of unleashes all this these feelings because we don't know what what to do with them. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's the charismatic personality, right? It's the yes. yes. right? it's a, it's the Weberian uh, charismatic personality. It's it's that one person very uniquely because most of us don't have that, you know, who who can marshal a force of people to believe things, to do things, uh, almost at will. And you know, I'm sure when it comes to Donald Trump, where those of us who are not supporters of his are stunned, honestly. Uh, I was not surprised that most Pentecostals who I think in terms of surveys would be surveyed under evangelicals. I would not be surprised at all that, uh, was it 71, 81% still support him. That, that didn't surprise me at all because the, what I think what we're talking about here is the, the love of an authoritarian leader, of an authoritarian charismatic personality. And basically I wrote a little bit about this, not in the book, but in other places. Uh, what Donald Trump is for Pentecostals is he is the preacher that succeeds. I have a wife, but I've been married a lot. But I've been forgiven, even though he's never prayed for forgiveness or never even confessed sin, from what I understand. Well, also there was the whole the whole thing. If his uh, there was something early in his
0: presidency where I don't know if it was Pat Robertson or somebody who said that he is anointed by
1: God. Okay. Exactly. He's, yeah. This yeah. is a yes. That whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and and you get, but you get leaders in the Pentecostal movement like Pat Robertson and others who vet for him, who vouch for him, and say, "Look, I know. Put all that aside. He's like David. He's a sinner, but he's been redeemed. He's going to help us. Let's let it go." And they let it go. Why did they let it go? Well, why did they let it go with Amy McPherson? Why did they let it go with yeah, uh, with any of these other people? I mean, you put your finger on it, it's like there's just so many escape patches, right? There's just so many theological. Um, you know, gaps, loopholes, loopholes. There's a lot of loopholes, right? And and Donald Trump is the is the epitome of the exploiter of loopholes. (laughs) That's true. And so and so, this is just one more thing. This is just he's rich. uh, He's he loves the country uh, ostensibly. We're not really sure. He's blessed because richness equals blessing. Right. Uh, His kids, all of that. The whole thing. I mean the whole the whole package it's almost like see, you have almost the opposite of what we just talked about with the women. The the he's a winner, he's because he's rich and all of this stuff, but he makes no confession of faith. Absolutely none, but yet we somehow know that God's anointed him. But we have no evidence of that at all. <laughs> right. Whereas, whereas with Catherine Kuhlman, you had scads of evidence. Her preaching, her teaching, her praying, at least right. you knew. Right. That there was something real about her confession, whether or not her private life was a mess again, it probably was, <laughs> you know, but we have, we have nothing of that with Donald Trump. And yet his people vouch for him, Pentecostal leaders vouch for him um, because they, they want to secure particular political goods out of him. Right. No. And they have so far and they have, and they'll, and they'll never leave his side. I don't think there's anything he can do. Nothing short of, uh, Prob no. I'm trying to think. You know, I don't think there's anything. I, I really don't. I mean, we'll find out in a few days, right? If there's even a little regret among evangelicals of Pentecostals for, for for supporting him, but I don't know. Tony Robbins is a different case. Tony Robbins is part of. I think Pentecostals would view him as new age. Oh, I know they would. Kind of scary, kind of yeah, spooky. Yeah, but she... but I totally see that the whole thing. He's he's therapeutic and he's charismatic and he he. He knows how to move you from place to place. And he, he they're just people who are very good right. at that. They're the charismatic personality. But once Tony Robbins is gone, uh, according to, to the, the theory, right, there's got to be somebody in place to take that place. Otherwise, those people right. scatter. They leave, right? They're, there's only just one. There's only one charismatic leader at a time, right? And so Donald Trump is a charismatic political leader for now. Tony Robbins might be for his right. his group and his, his, de- his demographic for now. Um, but that's why Pentecostals, uh, men, particularly who are usually pastors secure the position for their sons ah, after oh. so that this charismatic line can continue. Right. It's almost like it's genetic.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. So Arlene, uh, i want to ask you a final question. Yeah. Uh, how do you hope your, your book will be used? I think it's a real primer. I think it's a great primer for people who don't know anything about Pentecostalism to get sort of, you know, ramped up. Um uh, and, and yeah, I and I also think there's a lot of opportunities for further research in this
1: tons that was the whole point that was the whole point. It was a synthetic work it, it's a textbook yeah. you know, so it's um it's meant for that, you know it's not meant to really break a lot of new ground and stuff it's it's like primer, it's done in a very different way, it's thematic, it's not timeline um I want it to be used that way. I want, I want researchers and scholars, American religious scholars of all kinds, theologians, uh, to run with it and, and write about that, write about the theological gaps, write about the race issues, write about the ethnicity issues, write about women. Oh, the women. Please. you know, somebody write about, <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, I wrote a book similar to this about 12 years ago on Latino Pentecostals. I thought it was just going to lead to a flood of the market. Of a lot of new research, and it has. There's been some good stuff that's come out, but it's come out less than I would want. I wanted more and more, uh, because I I care deeply about my field. I care deeply about American religious history. I'm really hoping that this spurs a lot of people, even if it's to say, you know what, she's wrong. (laughs) You know what? There's just more to it, and I think she really did a superficial treatment. Fantastic, (laughs) great. Okay, you know what? You need to run with that though. Run with it. Tell me that I'm wrong about Kuhlman. Tell me that I'm wrong about Sly Stone. And tell me that I'm wrong about Elvis Presley, whatever, right? But I want people to explore. those avenues because Pentecostalism is so rich. Oh, it yes. is it's so just, interesting. It's fascinating that that you know. And I think it tells us. And the material is there. And it tells us a it's, lot. The of, stuff is man, there. And it
0: tells us a lot about America and about our culture. It's more than just
1: Pentecostalism. Um, it tells us a lot about where our hurts are. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And and it tells you how how normal it is, right? I mean, for twenty plus years, I've been in Pentecostal churches where they tell me how extraordinary they are. How different they are, how blessed by God they are. And and you know what? And they don't, they're not doing it in bragging, right? They're doing it out of this real deep, deep seated belief that they believe God has blessed them. And then you go out into the, into the rest of American culture and go, wow, it's just like this. Right. Right. I mean, they are, they are, they are how ordinary these folks are. They just need and want and desire someone to listen to them. Well, uh right. So somewhere to, somewhere to be liked and loved and and accepted and they happen to have found it in these churches
0: arlene you have been very generous with your time thank you so much yeah. thank you and thank you to our listeners to tuning in to another edition of new books in american study this is your host lillian barger